You're listening to the Sustainable Jungle Podcast. We share uplifting and positive stories from people all over the world working to change our planet for the better. I'm Lyle, and this week we speak with Erin Mizan, the Chief Sustainability Officer at Interface, one, if not the, greenest publicly listed company in the world. We cover a number of topics, including the story of Interface, their innovative approach to tackling climate change, and making tiles out of carbon. Check out our show notes for the breakdown of our discussion at sustainablejungle.com forward slash podcast. Without further ado, Erin Mizan. Erin, welcome to our podcast and thank you so much for being here. We're absolutely thrilled to have you on the show. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? Where were you born and where did you grow up? Sure. Um, I was born in the early 1970s in the United States in uh, a region of the country surrounded by the Great Lakes. So I was born in the state of Michigan. And it was a really interesting time in the U.S. in the sense that in the early 1970s, the U.S. had passed a lot of their first environmental laws, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act. So when I was you know, like a youngster, 10, 12 years old, the decade long of environmental regulation in the U.S. was driving a lot of awareness in kids my age around the need to think about things like clean water and protect animals. And so growing up at that time in the U.S., you know, we learned a lot about the environment. It was one of the first times in the U.S. when the nation started having those conversations about why environmental protection was important. I wonder what happened. Why, why, why did you think it, it's changed over the years? It feels like the 80s and 90s. I mean, we grew up in the 80s and 90s, and that wasn't really a thing. What do you think changed? Well, I think what, you know, it really was this impact in the United States of having about a, like 10 to 15 years of the first environmental laws. So in the 1970s, I, th- I think the year I was born or the year prior President Nixon created the Environmental Protection Agency, and it was the first sort of U.S. federal level agency focused on environmental protection and advocacy. And by the time I was, you know, in my, you know, early years, that agency had been around for 15 years, and it had created a lot of programs associated with state level cleanup and citizen awareness and and I think that agency and those laws were really driving the conversation in the U.S., and it was increasingly NGOs that were talking about the need to clean up. So, com- like, groups like Greenpeace were doing a lot of public advocacy in the U.S. that might have been targeted at my parents, but a lot of us were hearing about why we needed to save the whales and why environmental protection was really important. And it wasn't really being taught in schools But it was definitely kind of this growing consciousness when I was a kid, and that definitely impacted me. I mean, I certainly learned science in school, but I learned a lot about why we needed to be more active and protect some of these amazing areas. And is that why you went in to study environmental law? Absolutely. I mean, I think that that and growing up um, in the state of Michigan with the Great Lakes, my family and I vacationed a lot on the Great Lakes, and we spent a lot of time outside. We had a lake house in northern Michigan, and my brother and I really interacted a lot with nature. Our summers were spent pretty much outside. I mean, our parents would push us outside in the morning and say, come back at dinner time. (laughs) Um, And so we really experienced that as children, and I think 
being around those amazing resources and then hearing the debate in the public about we needed to do things to protect it at an early age made me realize, okay, I definitely want to be engaged somehow as a professional protecting these resources. And there weren't really the kinds of sustainability programs, particularly in the United States, that you could get at an undergraduate level. So it was kind of like environmental science or environmental law. And I figured kind of a law degree would be a great multi-purpose degree as I got older. Has that been the case? Absolutely. I mean, in my career, I've lobbied for environmental organizations. I've written legislation. I've worked at a law firm. Um, I worked for the Department of Energy running sustainability programs. And now I'm at a, you know, publicly traded company running sustainability. It's proven to be something that's been really helpful in different parts of a sustainability career. Let's delve a little bit more into this career that you've just alluded to. It's clearly hugely impressive. And as a leader in sustainability, you've really done a lot. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you started your career and what have been some of the key moments of evolution for you? Yeah, sure. Um, So, you know, I decided I was going to get an environmental degree and really focus on the law. But I quickly realized I needed to understand kind of a lot more about how the law was actually applied. So I also got a master's degree in environmental policy and, you know, coming right out of school in the mid nineties, um, I left law school at about the same time interface started its sustainability revolution. I didn't know the company. I didn't know what they were working on and I went into practice law and about a year into that, I realized it just wasn't allowing me to really work on environmental advocacy as much as I wanted to. So on the side, I started lobbying uh, the Tennessee Assembly for environmental organizations. I represented groups like the Sierra Club, Save Our Cumberland Mountains, American Rivers, the Tennessee Rivers Association. And we were writing, you know, kind of frontline legislation that was focused on really important issues in Tennessee at the time, stopping clear cutting, thinking about protecting, um, you know, development around streams and rivers with buffer zones, really, really important legislation that would have kind of on the ground impacts. And I really enjoyed it and kind of realized this is a place where I wanted my career to go. I'd never envisioned working for a company. And in fact, in a lot of those early lobbying days, the business interests were often counter to some of the work that we were doing um, and some of the legislation we were trying to pass. So I didn't have a particularly um, optimistic view of business being a place where I would eventually end up. But then, you know, fast forward about a decade, I was working for the Department of Energy And I was at a sustainable business event, and I saw Ray Anderson, the founder of Interface, giving the keynote speech. And I turned to my boss at the Department of Energy at the time and said, I can't believe there's a company that is doing this kind of work. Like, I would really like to work for that guy. You know, can you introduce me? You know, and my boss, I remember my boss saying, I know this guy is amazing, but, you know, he runs a carpet company, um, you know, which seemed like the most unexciting thing at the time. But he talked about the vision of Interface, Mission Zero, and more importantly, the fact that the company had started to realize some of that vision. And so um, just honestly, like completely happenstance a couple weeks later, 
someone from Interface that I knew socially called me and said, you know, I'm thinking about um, moving to a different position in the company. Would you be interested in coming and talk to Interface? And I was like, absolutely. Whatever I can do, here's my resume. It's a place I'd really like to work. And it was because I had seen Ray talk about the company and the vision. That's so exciting, Erin. It sounds like sometimes things are just meant to be. So, for the listeners out there who are not across who Interface is, what they do, who Ray Anderson is, and what his vision became for Interface, would you mind just elucidating a couple of those points? Sure. You know, Interface is a really interesting business. It's about a billion-dollar flooring business that was started in the U.S. Um, in 1973. And I think it's interesting for two things. It had, it's kind of had two phases in its life. It was created by this amazing engineer called Ray Anderson, who saw the product, which was modular carpet or carpet squares, and became really excited about that as an innovative idea that could sort of change the commercial office space in the 1970s, you know? Everything was going modular and was thinking about flexibility and mobility. And he just thought, this is so disruptive to take kind of a kind of old, boring product of carpet, make it modular, make it do things from a design perspective that were really cool. And so he built the business based on this innovative idea. So it always was this really cool idea that really built the market, kind of created a whole new product offering um, when Interface was launched. So it was founded on this exciting idea. And then about, you know, halfway through the life of its company, it this billion-dollar business, and he transformed it again. And a really interesting thing happened to him. So in the early 90s, he started to hear questions coming back from that great customer base he had developed, architects and designers, you know, commercial offices, and the question was, what is Interface doing for the environment? And he had never had that question from a customer, and more importantly, he'd never thought about it. It bothered Ray that we didn't know how to answer that question. So built on that idea of an innovative product, Ray created, and over the course of the next 10 or 11 years, built a billion-dollar company really focused on bringing this innovative idea to customers. And then in the early 90s, um, about 20 years into the life of the company, Interface hit another kind of transition point. We've gotten a really important question from a customer, what is your company doing for the environment? And it was something Interface had never thought about and never explored. And we didn't have an answer to that question. And it really bothered our founder, Ray Anderson, that customers were asking us something that we couldn't answer. He created a task force internally at Interface that was organized around answering this question of, what is Interface doing for the environment? What's our environmental position? They invited Ray to come and kick off that task force and give the company his vision. And, you know, he's since said, I didn't have a vision. I didn't know what the company should be doing on the environment. And at that moment, um, he read a book by Paul Hawken called The Ecology of Commerce. And he describes the experience of reading that book as a spear in the chest, uh, like an epiphanal moment for him, because the book was sort of describing the state of the planet, the challenge we now faced based on the environmental degradation, and business being a major cause of that. 
So he said, I had this epiphanal moment. I realized I had been running interface in a way that was damaging the planet, but I was hopeful that I could address it, that I could do something at interface. So he showed up at this meeting with an amazing vision for the company, you know, to have zero negative environmental impact and ultimately to have a restorative impact. And that's the vision he gave the team and said, now let's figure out a map and some goals and let's make some commitments and let's transform our business to achieve this vision. And so I think what's really interesting about that is he was one of the first CEOs to ever publicly commit a company to that aggressive a sustainability vision. He's been called the greenest CEO on the planet, uh, but he was really an early pioneer. I mean, I think nowadays it's table stakes in a lot of places to have some sort of sustainability commitment, but 24 years ago, it was radical. And so he, he really had took on a lot of courage to not just commit the company internally, but then increasingly talk publicly about the goals and commitments we were making. And it was that very vision that actually attracted me and lots of other people like me to come to Interface and put our careers on the line to actually try to achieve something this radical. It's so inspirational and so ahead of his time. And I mean, people talk a lot about Elon Musk being a change maker, and indeed he is. But wow, Ray Anderson is really an unsung hero in this industry. It's amazing what he's done and achieved. I wonder, Erin, could you tell us a little bit more about this Mission Zero and what have the accomplishments been to date? Sure. So, you know, this idea of having zero impact on the planet um, was something that Ray quickly realized, we're going to have to build a framework, we're going to have to measure that, and we're going to have to publicly report where we are. So we broke that down into an approach where we focused on seven key areas in the business. And the first thing we asked ourselves was actually based on biomimicry thinking. We said, you know, if nature were to run a business, what would it actually function like? And the answers to those questions became the basis for this framework. So nature wastes nothing. We wanted to have a goal to have zero waste. Um, nature doesn't put negative emissions into the environment. Let's have benign emissions. Uh, nature runs on sunlight. Let's have a 100% renewable energy target. Nature recycles everything. Let's make sure all of our material flows are closed loop. Um, Nature uses and move thing, moves things efficiently. Let's have very efficient transportation goals. Um, nature communicates. Let's make sure all of our stakeholders understand what we're doing and are sensitized. And then, you know, nature designs things beautifully. So let's make sure we redesign the company in a way that is much more aligned with what a business model should be that is sustainable. So that was kind of the, the real area that we focused in the business, and we set some pretty aggressive targets, zero waste, 100% renewable energy. And I'm super excited and proud to say that, you know, 24 years in, we're getting really close to achieving some of those targets. We've made amazing progress. So if we think about things like we've reduced the waste we send into landfill by 91%. Um, currently, 88% of the energy that we use in the business comes from renewable or bio-based sources. Um, you know, 90, we've reduced the greenhouse gas emissions in our business 96%. 
Wow. Um, That's amazing. Which produce the water, 88%, right? I mean, we're, we're getting some really interesting metrics at the factory level, but also you've got to remember that we're a company that makes products. So we also have to make sure that the products themselves also reflect this. And the two really important things we look at in terms of are the products get more, are, are the products becoming more sustainable are what are the materials that go into them? What percentage are recycled and bio-based? And what's the carbon footprint of the product? And I know I'm talking a lot about numbers, but it's really, really important for anyone who's going to try to make progress to set a target and then talk about the numbers at some point. So we're really excited to say that 58% of all the materials that we use to make stuff in the business are recycled or bio-based. And by 2020, we want to get that number to the 90s. Wow. So that's just a quick look at metrics. Um, and I think it's really, really important that you're able to do that, that you're able to kind of show the progress and that you're willing and open to report it publicly. Yeah, absolutely. When you set those benchmarks and, and targets and goals and achieve them or get close to achieve them. And uh, I understand by 2020, you're looking good to achieve carbon neutrality. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, we think that uh, based on an announcement that we may make later this year that we will get there very, very soon. Um, you know, we are effectively carbon neutral in the business right now. The biggest carbon implication as a product manufacturer is actually not our company operations. So it's not the factories or the offices. It's the implication of using the raw materials that we use to make the product. So you know, about 85% of the footprint, the carbon footprint of those products is largely from our supply chain, but all most of the footprint of the products is the materials used to make them. And so that's where we really need to get focused on using recycled and bio-based and using low-carbon or carbon-neutral inputs, you know, low-carbon or carbon-neutral nylon to make the products. And so we're set to make an announcement in, you know, about six weeks where we are going to transform the company and every product we sell will be carbon neutral as a standard attribute. And I think it will be a huge step forward for the company to be able to say we are effectively carbon neutral. But I think more importantly, it will put pressure on our competitors and the market to follow suit. Fantastic. I think by the time we release this, Erin, that, that will probably almost line up perfectly with that announcement. So we'll make sure we put the links into the show notes for that announcement. That also reminds me, we read about one of the smaller initiatives. When I say smaller, I'm not sure if it is smaller, but called Networks. Could you tell us a little bit more about that initiative? Oh, yeah. This is such a great program. And it just came out of this idea that, um, you know, we've done a lot over the last 24 years to reduce the impact of our factories and operations. But as I said, we're in a broader supply chain. And oftentimes the sustainability of those raw materials that we get from other suppliers really impacts the sustainability of the products. So our innovation team was trying to solve this challenge of saying, how do we go beyond recycled content from our supply chain? And how do we get recycled content in a way that has additional environmental or social benefits? So following an inclusive business model, we founded something we call Networks, which is a really great example of how 
kind of a circular economy model can really provide benefits to the environment and people. So it's based on this idea that how could we get socially inclusive and environmentally beneficial raw materials into our supply chain? So Interface, working with the Zoological Society of London and Aquafil, funded a pilot project where communities in the Philippines harvest um, ghost fishing nets from the marine environment, collect them, bale them, send them to our supplier, Aquafil, who makes them into recycled nylon that gets used to design and create interface products. So it's this really cool community-based supply chain for discarded fishing nets you know, which are kind of a major source and of pollution and hazard to marine life. So through the Networks program, we've been able to collect and recycle about 183 metric tons of nets so far. And we've expanded the program now to have operations in 36 communities in both the Philippines, but now also communities in Cameroon. And we're expanding the program to Indonesia as we speak. That's an incredibly impactful project. I, I didn't realize it was that wide. That's very, very interesting, very cool. Um, the other thing that I like about that is from what I've been reading recently about using a recycled plastic that's collected from the oceans, for example, to weave into new materials to be, uh, to be used for, say, clothing. Um, the problem with that is when you wash it, some of those microfibers get washed back into the ocean and cause a similar problem. But I guess copper tiles, it's the perfect use because you're not going to be putting that through the washing machine every day, right? So that's the ideal solution. Absolutely. I mean, I think what's nice and exciting is there's loads of innovation happening where big companies, little companies, and startups are actually saying, how does some of this really problematic waste, particularly ocean plastic, how is that a raw material? I think that's the right question, but I think you're right. I mean, some industries and some uses are better than others. And so I'm super excited about, you know, places like putting it into carpet tile, making sure it can go into furniture. So Human Scale has a really interesting program where they're doing this. Uh, there's a really great innovative company called Boreo where they make this into skateboard decks and sunglasses. I think there's really interesting, like, opportunity to solve one of the world's biggest challenges and still make great products and make money doing it. Speaking of opportunity and innovation, let's talk about carbon take back. I understand that's another interface mission. What does that mean and what, why is that exciting? Yeah, I mean, and so this is something that we just launched about a year and a half ago, and it really builds on where we started, you know, 24 years ago, which is we've had about two decades of really reducing the impact of the business. We were getting close to achieving those zero footprint goals. And we went back and sort of asked our employees first, where do we go next? You know, what's the next ambition for interface? And we did kind of a year long interview process with lots of our employees, with our customers. And, you know, what we heard back was Interface, because we've been able to come so far as a company on sustainability, really needs to raise its ambition. We need to take on some of the larger challenges of the world, and our employees really believe that climate change is the biggest threat facing humanity. So we launched a new mission that's focused on creating a climate fit for life, and we call it Climate Take Back. And all that means, quite simply, is we are pledging to run our business in a way that helps reverse global warming. 
Which is just that small little. <laughs> that small little goal. Clear, yeah. I feel like if you're gonna go big on sustainability, <laughs> your employees give you the permission to dream big. Let's dream really big and let's get people really excited. And I think it's really interesting, just personally, because we've spent the last three decades trying to convince people that global warming is a real issue. And we've done it with science and data and fear. And as a result, I think a lot of people feel paralyzed and they don't feel like this is solvable and they certainly don't know what they can do about it. And I feel some of that in our business leadership. I know our employees feel that way. So as a business, it's going to drive amazing innovation. I think we're going to change the conversation in the built environment. But as a human, I'm really excited because I think it's going to give people at Interface some hope. And I think we're going to inspire other people to be hopeful that we can actually do something about this. Absolutely. I actually, I saw one of your tweets recently where you where you tweeted an article about tax incentives and how there's organizations like the Y Combinator who are looking for startups who are going to invest in carbon removal innovations. From your perspective, what are some of the innovations or startups that you're seeing out there that are most exciting to you from a carbon economy perspective? Absolutely. So if you break it down really simply, we need a lot of innovation in the economy that kind of does three things. It drives deep decarbonization. It focuses on carbon removal and it utilizes carbon as a resource. And so when I look across that landscape at what's really exciting, um, a lot of those technologies like Climeworks who are, you know, putting technology on a building or on the back of a power plant or on a manufacturing plant that will immediately utilize the CO2 and make sure it never gets emitted. That's really exciting. Um, I think some of the other technologies associated with how do we embed CO2 in raw materials or how do we use CO2 to make recycled materials, I think is really interesting. That will, the availability of those materials will allow large companies, large institutions to do things like make carbon negative buildings, buy carbon negative products. So a lot of that interesting raw material innovation about, you know, using CO2 as a building block, I think is super exciting and interesting to us. And it's some of the stuff we've started to experiment with in creating, you know, prototypes for our own business. So last year we launched something we called Proof Positive. And the, the challenge we gave to our innovation team was make a carpet tile that loves carbon. So about a year ago, we, you know, we've been experimenting with these materials that store CO2. And about a year ago, we developed the world's first carbon negative product prototype. We called it proof positive. And the idea is that it using plant based materials, it stores more CO2 than the entire life cycle it used to create it. So where the carbon would have otherwise been emitted back into the atmosphere, we've actually been able to store that in our product. And what's not exciting about that is, you know, the actual thing itself. What's really exciting about that for our innovation team is getting that challenge opened up their perspective and, and they looked at a whole new range of raw materials that we had never focused on before, many of which have 
really amazing implications for carbon negativity or, you know, storing more carbon than we're actually using to make the product. So that's super exciting to me. You know, if we can do it, anybody can do it. And when we launched that prototype, what was so interesting is several other large companies contacted us, folks in the apparel world, folks in the built environment space, and said, you know what, we're actually working on carbon negative as well. Can we share notes? Can we talk about raw materials? So I think this is one of those conversations that isn't yet public, but it's really happening behind the scenes. That's such an inspiring idea to me. I had no idea that this was happening and quite comforting, actually. <laughs> and talking about challenges and, and progressive initiatives and companies, you've already mentioned biomimicry, Erin. I w wonder if you wouldn't mind just giving the listeners an overview, a 10,000-foot overview of what biomimicry is and why it's so exciting. Sure. Um, you know, biomimicry to me is one of the most exciting ideas and underutilized ways of thinking. So if I had to sum it up, I would say biomimicry is really an approach to thinking that really looks at nature as the teacher. So if you're trying to solve a product design problem or an innovation challenge, you know, biomimicry teaches you to look at how nature would solve a challenge, how you could emulate its design thinking or functionality in a way that helps you solve a human challenge. And so they've been a partner of ours for at least 20 years. Um, Janine Benius was an original advisor to our founder, Ray Anderson, and helped us in those early days figure out how should we structure the company, what should the goals be. But then even beyond that, we've used her thinking to inform product design to think about how we engage employees on the factory floor in understanding how they can help us redesign process efficiencies in the business or just rethink about the business in a different way. Um, and so we have some really great examples where, in particular, a product we have called Entropy was created based on biomimicry thinking. Um, and it's a really great story. You know, our product design team, after getting this vision and inspiration from Ray and this framework, our product designers were struggling with how do we make more sustainable products that will live up to a zero footprint vision? You know, we've started to remove or dematerialize, but there's only so much dematerializing we can do without affecting the performance. We need a different lens. And so Janine and her team uh, engaged in a workshop session with our product design team. And they actually quite literally took them out in the forest and said, we're going to start by understanding how nature designs floors. So we're going to literally observe the forest floor. <laughs> and we want the interface design team to take lessons from that. And don't come back to us, you know, with a carpet tile pattern with leaves on it. <laughs> like, dig deep and really understand how nature functions to design a floor. And so they had several observations, but one of the key observations was nothing is alike. You know, no two, leave, no two leaves are the same. You know, the root structure of a tree sometimes runs in a different direction. And so this idea of randomness was a key observation. So we took that back from the meeting, and then the biomimicry guys challenged us to say, do you design with randomness at all? And, you know, we didn't. 
I mean, we, not surprisingly, our product designers designed for assembly. You know, all the manufacturing at its base in the U.S., when you think about it, is based on the Model T. It's cookie cutter. It's, you know, we design the same thing over and over again. And so our product designers had been influenced by that thinking to design everything alike, which is the complete opposite of random. So the biomimicry guys challenged us and said, if you were nature, every carpet tile that you were designing would be slightly different. But when it was installed, it would still look beautiful. And so it it really kind of was revolutionary for our designers because they, you know, they sort of embraced this idea of random design and came up with a product design that actually um, was much larger to scale, was slightly random, and was kind of different in its manufacture. So instead of designing 10 carpet tiles that looked exactly alike, they designed a floor of 10 tiles that were slightly different but would still work together. So imagine that applied to manufacturing and the idea of off-quality. If you're no longer trying to design everything alike, but things can be slightly different, you've de facto eliminated this idea of off-quality. You've allowed for design to have a bit of flexibility. Think about it when it gets installed. You know, people can install that faster because you don't have to match everything to each other. It can be slightly random. So it was really this revolutionary thinking that created a whole new product design category that had better benefits on the manufacturing side for sustainability and for installation. And designers ended up really loving this idea that there was some randomness. There was a little bit of movement in the floor, and they loved the kind of sustainability piece of that. So it's a great example of where using something that nature does just by design, we were able to mimic and have really great benefits in the business. That's super interesting. And I guess everybody then has their own unique carpet, which is really cool. Uh, and so you were talking about going out into the forest and, and, and taking examples uh, from the forest floor. We understand that you also developed this concept of the, the factory as a forest. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So, um, you know, we've been collaborating with Biomimicry and the Biomimicry Institute for many years. And our latest collaboration is around a project we call Factory as a Forest. And this really ties back to our climate take back mission. You know, a, a part of achieving that will be managing to run our business in a way that doesn't add extra carbon to the atmosphere, that removes CO2 and really, you know, looks to protect a lot of the natural carbon sinks that exist. So when you think about that as a vision and you realize that we have seven or eight factories around the world, it gave us a challenge to say what would be a new vision we could have to run those factories in a way that would help us achieve the mission of climate take back. So we hatched this idea of factory as a forest and it's pretty simple. You know, it asks, how can we mimic a high-performing ecosystem in the way in which we operate the factories? So for the last 20 years, we've been asking the factory teams to have zero impact. You know, get your waste to zero, use 100% renewable energy, take zero water from the ecosystem, put zero greenhouse gas emissions out. Now we're asking them to go a step higher 
and actually have a positive impact. So function like a high-performing ecosystem. So the Factory is a Forest project follows four key steps. Identify a high-performing ecosystem near a factory location. Measure what it does. So literally catalog, working with the Biomimicry Institute, how much carbon does it sequester? How much water does it cycle? How much habitat benefit will it provide? How does it enrich soil? Catalog those benefits, then set a target for our factory operations to meet similar goals. So the last bit of it is then what are the kind of the design strategies and the technologies and the practices we can do at those factories to make it function like a high-performing ecosystem. So those design, you know, interventions are everything from rainwater collection systems to um, different ways that we manage stormwater. They might be more green space. We might manage the landscape differently. We might have different asphalt. Um, We might plant different things around that. We might look at different HVAC measures. There's all sorts of really interesting technologies that it's exposing us to when we imagine kind of a different vision for the factory, not just zero impact, but be like a forest is is really driving us to think more innovatively about what we can do at the factory level. It's a whole new way of looking at the, the factory of the future concept, which is kind of cool. Absolutely. And I think what's really great about this is, and you see this reflected in the green building movement, um, a lot of the early sustainability stuff was about improving the building's performance for building's sake, but not necessarily having an impact on the people who work in the building or the factory. And I think what's so cool about, you know, moving from this beyond ways to 100% renewable energy, a lot of that great sustainability stuff on the building performance side, our employees don't interact with. So most of the employees in this company work in factory spaces. And when we imagine them functioning like forests, they're going to have much better interaction with a lot of those improvements. I mean, better biophilic design, more access to daylight, very different physical spaces in which they can work that are maybe cooled or heated differently, they will start to be able to see the impact of the things we're doing at the company level in a very different and, I think, positive way. And I think that's what's really exciting about that kind of design is it brings a lot of sustainability to the people who are working in our plants in a way that they maybe haven't had it in the past. Yeah, and like the the renewable energy industry, it's a whole new generation of jobs as well, which is much needed in this world. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, I I can imagine just as, you know, the kind of green building movement is coming to grips with the Well Building Institute and all the new opportunity that's creating for people to be in the conversation around how do we make buildings better for people – I can imagine that's going to bring a whole new set of job opportunities for how do how do we really implement this? How do companies actually shift their thinking from not just creating an efficient building to one that actually makes people feel good about working there and possibly healthier? Absolutely. Erin, I read a quote of yours that went something like this. There is no clear definition of what it means to be a positive business and to have a positive impact. 
So this is quite an interesting idea. And I, I saw on the Interface website that there is a pretty cool infographic uh, that has a bunch of interesting stats. And one that was interesting to me was that 95% of young leaders believe that business is not doing enough to tackle climate change. So aside from Interface, which is obviously incredibly far ahead of the curve, what would you say is the role of big business in changing the status quo and driving change? Yeah, I mean, I think business has huge opportunity to shift the conversation on global warming from one of we can't do anything to optimism. And so I think the first thing a lot of businesses can do is actually publicly start talking about global warming in a different way, not just acknowledging that it's a problem, but acknowledging that there is a huge business opportunity associated with addressing it. So, you know, for those businesses that aren't ready to go as far as interface, I think a first step is they can actually acknowledge there's business opportunity here. I mean, the global CO2 initiative estimates that, you know, certain sectors, whether it's agriculture building materials, there are huge opportunities associated with making the types of products that are either low or zero carbon that it would take to get us to a stable climate. There's business opportunity in making and selling those products. So if you imagine like what GE did many years ago with eco-imagination, and they said, look, we see a market here for more efficient trains, for better engines that, you know, burn less fuel. And we're going to brand that eco-imagination and we're going to go after that market. I think there's a similar opportunity here around low carbon, zero carbon technologies and products. And companies can start talking about it and they can start investing in it. And if it's too much to shift your business overnight, they can start piloting a lot of these technologies. I mean, do a small low carbon, zero carbon product line. You know, do a couple of properties in your portfolio, design those offices to be zero carbon interiors. Start experimenting. I mean, I think that's the first bit. I think the second, much like I said in the beginning, is they can talk to their employees and make sure they understand the issues around global warming and are are empowered in the business to act to do something about it. And sometimes that just means doing what Interface did, putting a stake in the ground, drawing a line in the sand, making a public commitment, and starting to move towards that. I think big businesses have a huge opportunity. I also think entrepreneurs have an amazing opportunity associated with designing that technology, you know, finding that raw material that's actually going to use carbon in a useful way. So I'm super encouraged by companies like Covestro in Germany who are, you know, finding ways to design new materials like mattresses um, with, you know, in a way that utilizes carbon as a raw material. I think it's super interesting. Yeah, it's so, cool as well. It's just the cool stuff. It's so cool, right? And And as I said, like a couple of weeks ago, we were highlighted like, I don't know, last week in, in a Fast Company article. And it really does get down to this idea of who as a company doesn't want to be working on a project that's going to solve global warming. I mean, try to find something more exciting than that, right? So if we can say to our employees and our customers and our supply chain, 
come on board with us. We are trying to solve the greatest challenge facing humanity. Who doesn't want to be involved in that? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's incredibly exciting. Absolutely. Yeah. And actually, what you've touched on here is, um, you know, communicating the vision and the message to employees. Um, and that will sort of help drive change. But what about looking at it the other way around? And, and I think you've alluded to this throughout this conversation is, uh, you know, employees actually driving change the other way around. So what opportunity is there for individuals out there to help their organization drive change? And to what extent are you seeing this happening? Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, I think it's a huge opportunity because there are kind of small, discrete steps that people can take. I mean, there are, it is not just about a billion dollar company like Interface setting this goal. When we have this conversation with our customers and we say, you know, we want you to come along on this journey. Many of them are not in large, you know, corporate environments. A lot of them design small offices or they're working for clients where they don't have the final decision rights. And so it is about these small steps. I think one easy small step is sort of ask about the role of carbon in, in the project. So a lot of design firms now, including Gensler, have pledged that in all the design work they do globally, they would like to do it in a way that reduces the carbon implications of either those renovations or those new buildings. So sometimes it's just asking a simple question like, Hey, how are we thinking about, you know, carbon and the carbon impact of this project? It might be another simple question like, do we have the opportunity to think about low carbon or carbon neutral raw materials or products? Could we design part of this campus building office in a way that has a carbon negative impact? Sometimes asking that simple question. Um, has a huge implication. Equally, you know, empowering your employees and your business to be able to ask those questions. So, you know, one thing we've tried to do at Interface is say to people, if you have an idea, if you have something that you can do, we'd like to find a way to um, support those ideas. I think one thing companies can do is really be proactive about allowing employees to implement new ideas. So setting aside innovation funds that go towards employee ideas or projects. One thing that Interface did in our European business many years ago was um, allow employees three levels of training focused on sustainability. And when they graduated from that sustainability training, they were asked to do a project in business that would help move the business forward to a more sustainable place. The other thing that I wanted to raise as well is like, let's not forget that this entire interface vision came about because a customer asked the question, what are you doing about the environment? So customers also have a role here to push the, the businesses and the companies and the organizations that they buy from to, to do better and to think about what it is they're doing for the environment. Absolutely. And I mean, I think we found that our customer base, whether it's architects and designers, um, big end-user companies or educational institutions, they've really embraced their role in doing that. And so I do think our customer base has done a very good job of asking for things like transparency. And so, you know, we created many years ago something – well, we didn't create it. We were the first to launch something called an environmental product declaration, which is sort of like a nutrition label for products that shows their impact pretty simply – 
And, you know, our customers were the real driving force and asking for more transparency. So they can ask for more information and make better decisions. I think some of our big company customers, like companies like Google and Harvard University, they've done a great job to really advance the conversation on understanding the health implications of what's in products. So they've done a really great job. And I think now we have an opportunity to enter the next wave. I mean, what we're encouraging our customers increasingly to do is make carbon neutral the standard. So don't buy a product that isn't carbon neutral. Um, Think about challenging your vendors to go carbon negative. Because, you know, we we are the proof of the fact that an interested customer can change your business. And change your business for great opportunities as well, it seems. Absolutely. I mean, it can push the business in a whole new direction where you can't imagine the financial opportunity there. Yeah. Erin, on leadership and sustainability, I love this quote of yours. When thinking about leadership in 2030, I can't get away from the word courage. Can you share a little bit more on the importance of courage and perhaps what the private sector can do to create an environment that encourages courage? (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? I mean, we typically don't think of large corporations as being uh, a place to look for courage. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, increasingly, the world is going to need it. I mean, we are faced with some pretty pervasive, interconnected environmental challenges, which are not just environmental, but social. And so when we think about things like the UN Sustainable Development Goals and essentially the roadmap we want the world to follow to be the world that we want as it develops, um, we quickly realize that one government, one nation, one continent um, can't solve that. We can't solve some of the global poverty goals or hunger goals or environmental issues unless every single stakeholder is engaged. And What that means is businesses need to stop thinking about solving the sustainability challenges of their business and really think about how do we run our business in a way that solves the broader sustainability challenges. So when Interface launched Climate Take Back in 2016, we had a new CEO. And when we first sort of came to the conclusion that climate change was where we wanted to focus, he was very open about saying, I'm going to bet the brand of the company on this. I'm going to stand up publicly and talk about reversing global warming. And that's going to be uncomfortable, even though I know we can do it, even though we've done something really similar. So I I think this idea of um, how do we ask more CEOs to have courage? How do we ask, you know, support them in sort of moving this forward? It's really critical. The issues we have to solve are huge. We need much more leadership from the private sector, and we need them to set much more ambitious goals. And just that in and of itself is going to push them out of their comfort zone. But I'm I'm encouraged, no pun intended, by some of the research from GlobeScan that says that people expect this. You know, if you look at the sustainability leader survey that came out last year from GlobeScan, and this is a survey where they talk to global sustainability practitioners around the world, and they ask them, how are we going to solve these big challenges? Who's doing a good job solving it? And looking across all sectors, NGO, government, private sector, who's doing a really good job? 
And what's increasingly clear is businesses are solving and starting to solve a lot of these larger challenges. So people are expecting us to do more. Confidence has gone down in governments, in local municipalities, in the NGO community, and people are expecting business to take a larger role. And I think that's going to be uncomfortable for many businesses who've just seen themselves as a profit generator. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think their customers are going to force them to do it. I think the general public is going to force them to do it. And I think we're just a little bit ahead of the curve on that. Uh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> I can't tell you how comforting that is, Erin. Interface, as a, as a publicly listed company, is leading the charge and... And I really hope others will follow suit. But before you go, because I'm conscious that we are just on the hour, actually, have you got any final words of advice uh, for any change makers out there who want to make a difference in their own business or organization? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a really interesting time. So because of the changing expectation of businesses, if you are a change maker in a large business or an institution, now is really the time to talk to your boss, to talk to the senior leaders in your organization, to really have a conversation about these shifting expectations and what your company can do. And I think some things that give companies comfort and sometimes help change makers advance an agenda is to share with your leadership team what others are doing. And so when we launched Climate Takeback, we made it very open source by design. One intention is for the climate take back plan that's on our website to be almost a discussion guide for someone to bring into their company and say, look at what this company is doing. Here are some examples of live zero or love carbon. Let's have a conversation about what could happen in our business. You know, there's a, there's an ability to have an easier conversation if you're showing your team examples of what others are doing. Similarly, it's really easy to get approval to do an experiment. So one great tool that most change makers have in their toolbox is not to ask for the entire transformation at once, but to ask for an experiment or a pilot project. You know, pilot projects are your friend. So this idea that even if you as a change maker in an organization have a view of where the company should be around reversing global warming, Maybe you just ask for a pilot project on a carbon negative experiment and, you know, you sell the business case there. And so I think those are two examples of where sharing the successes of other businesses, showing your management team, other organizations and their positive goals or their aspirations. And then also asking for a little bit of just experimental money to make the case. I think those two things have been very successful in, at a change maker level, really moving forward your organization, even when they're not ready to go to full transformation. Mm. Those are really, really insightful and important tools you can use. Absolutely. And collaborate. And that also goes back to that point earlier, you were talking about collaborating and the open source and availability of this information and encouraging businesses to work together on these challenges. Erin, where can people find you and Interface? Uh, we'll obviously put this all in the show notes, but your socials and website. Sure. So you can um, you can follow us on Twitter uh, at Interface Inc. or me at at Erin Mees. Um, they can find me on LinkedIn, 
and certainly reach out, um, and they can get loads of great information and kind of follow along with Climate Take Back on the Interface website at just www.interface.com. We've posted loads of information on not just what we're doing, but really a broader conversation around moving sort of towards this ambition of reversing global warming, what are our plans? What are our experiments? You can see videos and interviews from loads of people at Interface who are talking about the various different parts of experimentation that's going on in the business. That is fantastic. Thank you so much for that, Erin. And we really join. I thoroughly appreciate this chat. And I'm sure our listeners will be incredibly inspired to make change and find opportunity in this environmental adversity we've laid out in front of us. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thanks, guys. We really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Erin. And thank you for the resources. That's something that I didn't quite expect from this conversation. And I think many listeners out there can use the resources that you've provided at the Interface websites and the open source information you've provided. So I think that's a, that's a great bonus for many out there. It's good to know that there are companies out there like Interface and people like Erin who are steering those corporate ships in the right direction. If you want to learn more about Erin and the work she's doing at Interface, click on the links in our show notes below. And as always, any cues, comments, or suggestions, send us an email at hello at sustainablejungle.com.